This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading this evening comes from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we'll be looking at the middle section of this chapter, verses 22 through 40. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would illuminate these truths in your word to us by your Holy Spirit. You would prepare us to receive them. These wonderful words of life, 
of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the living bread of which we may partake and never hunger again. Pray that we would know and be confident in and believe and trust in this gospel and that we would be faithful to take it in a world that desperately needs to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you do if you were famous? If somehow, some way, overnight, you became a household name, everyone was paying attention to you, what would you do? What would you say? Fame, when it comes, is often fleeting. You could probably think of all the various celebrities, be they athletes, musicians, actors, politicians, so forth, who may have just a few years ago even been at the center of the spotlight, only to now no longer be remembered or known at all. They are fleeting. They are forgotten. Well, we have been in the Gospel of John thus far watching Jesus assent to many things, but among those is fame among the people. He has gone in the span of just a few chapters, covering a period of time of about a year, from a rather obscure Galilean to, as we saw at the end of our passage last week, the front runner to be the new king. It has been a rapid rise. But with that rise has come conflict and confrontation. The leaders of the Jews are now plotting to kill Jesus. The crowds follow Jesus everywhere and bring with them all their needs and questions and complaints and requests and the like. It seems that Jesus has achieved at this point the peak of his fame, at least for now. So what does he do with that fame? What does he say when everyone is listening? This is what we will look at tonight and again next week in the Gospel of John. This is a longer discourse, a longer teaching section from Jesus, so we will look at it in two parts. Jesus has, just before this, performed his miracle of miraculous feeding, where 5,000 men and their families ate their fill of fishes and loaves that Jesus had supernaturally provided when all they had was this one boy's lunch. Because of this and the other miracles that Jesus had done, everybody wants to be where Jesus is to see what he'll say or do next. I ask you how you might use fame if you had it. Well, here we see what Jesus, the Son of God, does with his earthly fame. It may seem a little strange. It may seem a little surprising. He doesn't do the sort of thing that most of us would probably do with fame if we had it. And so we will look at the first part of Jesus' teaching tonight, here in chapter 6, in three points. First, we look at motivations, in verses 22 through 27. Jesus, who knows the hearts and minds of all, has issues. He takes exception to the reasons that he has found this fame in the eyes of man. He confronts why they've really followed him, why they've really come to see him. And second, we see a discussion of manna. In verses 28 through 34, Jesus teaches concerning God's miraculous provision in the time of the Exodus and what that has to do with him. And third, we see mission in verses 35 through 40. What specifically has Jesus come to do on this earth? So again, we have motivations, we have manna, 
and we have mission. So first we look at motivations in verses 22 through 27. We see that there is a relentless pursuit of Jesus going on by this multitude, this crowd that followed him. In verse 22, we see that it has got to the point that the crowd is staking out the disciples' boat and trying to figure out where Jesus has gone. You might think of how modern-day celebrities are constantly being pursued by the paparazzi who want to get the photos and the latest gossip for their news stories, or how famous people are pursued by their fans and even by dangerous stalkers. It has to be exhausting. It has to be difficult to have a life so removed from normalcy. But that is essentially the situation at this point in our text that Jesus and his disciples are in. He can't even go on a boat ride. Never mind that he missed a lot of the boat ride. He, you know, walked on water to catch up. Without being relentlessly pursued by land and by sea. There's the people on the shore staking out the boat, and then there's the people that have taken off in other boats to come and try to find him, as we see in verse 23. And we see in verse 24, they finally track Jesus to where he is gone in Capernaum. In verse 25, when they catch up with Jesus, they ask when he got they ask when he got there, how long he had been there. They had seen the disciples board the boat near Bethsaida, but not Jesus. They didn't know about the whole walking on water business that had happened the night before. As Jesus often does, he does not answer the question he has asked. His interests are not in what the people want. This is where you see the stark difference between Jesus and modern famous people who would do anything to keep people happy and following and interested and keep their fame alive. Jesus does not care about the fame. In fact, when he speaks to this crowd, it is at first words of rebuke. In verse 26, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, this can be a bit confusing. What does Jesus mean when he says they have not seen the signs? They had seen Jesus' miracles. They had seen the feeding. They had seen the bread that they ate back in Bethsaida. That was a sign, and that was why they were following Jesus. They'd probably seen or heard about the miracles, the healings, the other things that Jesus has done. So what does Jesus mean that they haven't seen the signs? The problem that Jesus is rebuking is the people's motivations. They have seen the acts Jesus performed, But what they have not seen, what they have not understood, is the purpose of these acts, the purposes of these miracles. When he says that they're signs, signs point to something. They don't recognize why Jesus has done these miracles. Jesus is not giving bread. He's not healing the sick. He's not walking on water or turning water into wine for their own sakes. I mean, food, health, wine, these things are all well and good in their own way. But Jesus is confronting the fact that most of this multitude that is following him, most of the fame that he has accumulated thus far, is not because people are interested in Jesus' ultimate purposes. 
They're not interested in his word. They're not interested in his teaching. They're not interested in the salvation he has come to accomplish. They are interested in the stuff, the benefits, the food, the healing and such that comes from being near Jesus when he is working. In the passage last week, they wanted to make Jesus their king, not because they acknowledged Jesus' true kingship for what it was. They wanted to make Jesus king because he gave them health and food. That was all the use he was to them. Had they hypothetically made him king, and then the food and the healing stopped, they'd probably be right out the door and looking for their next king. How often are we prone to do likewise? How much of this do we see in our day? How many people attach themselves to Jesus, come to church, claim to be Christians, but they do so because they're really after something else? How many people come not to hear the words of life, to repent of their sins, believe in the gospel, but rather for the stuff, the material benefits, that come from being visibly attached to Jesus and his people. Now, it's becoming less popular to do this as Christianity becomes less popular in the Western world, but this is still out there. People who come to church seeking social agendas and action. People who come to church to try to get material resources and benefits from the church and its people. I've sadly seen cases before in churches I've been a part of where you might have people come for a while and you find out they're on hard times. They need support. Usually they need money. The church may help them out for a time, but then they keep asking for more and more help. And then it comes out that they're not really living lives that glorify Jesus. And so then that aid has to be stopped. And once the aid stops, the people are gone. They lash out, they condemn and accuse the church as hypocrites and abusers because they can't exploit the church for their own wants and needs. Now these are extreme cases, but this sort of thing can take more subtle forms. But these are the sort of things that Jesus is rebuking. People who come to him not for who he is, but for their own things, for their selfish ambitions, for the self-centered benefits that they receive. And so Jesus gives a warning in verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes. That bread that they ate on the other side of the sea, that's one meal that even if they all ate everything they could eat, to complete fullness it would last no longer than a day. You think about Thanksgiving, it's probably the biggest meal that most of us eat during the year. You still end up eating the next day, usually. Food is a constant need, a constant demand. These people follow Jesus to get bread, and they'll be gone once the bread stops coming. But Jesus tells them that there's a greater purpose they could be oriented towards. The food which endures to everlasting life. See, Jesus' ultimate purpose in his ministry it was not to feed or to clothe or to heal. Again, there is a rebuke here to much of the modern church, which has been co-opted by the social gospel and things like it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say or watched people post about 
How Jesus was a social activist whose primary interest was helping the poor and oppressed out of their poverty while opposing the rich and the powerful. It's perhaps the most pervasive false narrative about Jesus in our day. Jesus makes it very clear here that he did not come to earth to carry out an earthly social agenda. He came to earth to provide spiritual life, spiritual nourishment, a kind of food that only comes from the Son of Man who is the Son of God, the one whom the Father has set his seal upon. Sadly, many who are even Christians do the exact opposite of what Jesus does here. When they achieve some notoriety or fame or influence, they sell out to the world's agendas. They embrace these social agendas or otherwise embrace the ways of the world. They embrace the world's sins. They try to make them compatible with Christianity in some way. Well, the true work of Christ is not to be a social activist, but to save sinners. And that is the message that Jesus brings here, even as this crowd does not want to hear it. Now, this is not to say that the church should never engage in meeting worldly needs or dealing with worldly issues. But this is always done with gospel ends in mind. When the church feeds people, clothes people, helps people with their material needs, it does so in Jesus' name with the purpose of furthering the gospel, furthering the kingdom of Christ in this age, not for worldly purposes and approval. So Jesus has called out the motivations of this multitude that follows him. But now we come to our second point tonight, manna, in verses 28 through 34. The people respond to Jesus' rebuke with a question. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus has essentially challenged them that there is something higher and greater to his work and these miracles of healing and feeding that he has done. But the way that they frame this question shows that they are far from understanding. They ask what they should do that they might work the works. This betrays that they are expecting that they can please God by their works. Jesus responds, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. There's nothing that these people will do that will save themselves other than to believe, which even belief can only come as a gift from God. Faith is not something we can work in ourselves. It must be worked in us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The people want to do the works of God. It may even be possible that they want to know how to do the works as in they want to do the miracles that Jesus has been doing. But that is not the thing that matters. That is not what Jesus is concerned with. Jesus is concerned with the heart. He is concerned with their souls. He is concerned with belief. Yet the crowd still fails to understand. They immediately reply with asking Jesus, for a sign. Now these are people that have already seen and benefited from Jesus' miraculous power. What more signs could they want or need? 
Well, what this shows is the vanity and the futility of the signs of the miracles in themselves. People can see and experience miracles. They can talk face to face with Jesus about the nature of them, but that in itself will not cause them to believe. Only the power of God can cause them to believe. Jesus is revealing here in this crowd the power of sin and unbelief. And nothing can break through it but God's sovereign will. Verse 31, the crowd makes mention of something from the Old Testament. In the years of wilderness wandering, God sent manna from heaven to provide for the nourishment and sustenance of the people while they were in a barren wasteland all those years. Now why did they bring this up? Well, for one, it shows that they are still preoccupied with earthly food. It's almost as though they are trying to trick Jesus into feeding them again to confirm what he has just said. Almost like they're trying to change the subject, change the conversation, get Jesus back to giving them what they want, which is more bread, more stuff, more earthly benefits. But Jesus won't have this. He replies in verse 32, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, the true bread from heaven, greater than manna, greater than the bread Jesus gave them the day before on the other side of the sea, is the bread that only comes from God and gives true eternal spiritual life. This is made clear in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, Jesus is telling them that he is the bread. He is true manna. He is true sustenance, true nourishment that comes down from God. Now he will make this more clear in a moment. But this crowd is so occupied with the earthly bread, the earthly needs, the earthly things that they refuse to see and understand and partake of the bread which offers them a life that the manna in the desert or that bread in Bethsaida never could. They even think they understand. Verse 34, they reply to Jesus, Lord, give us this bread always. Sounds pious, it Sounds kind of like belief. But in their minds, they're still focused on the earthly bread. We know this because they won't get the earthly bread, and eventually they're going to leave by the end of this chapter. They want Jesus to keep feeding them bread, but they are not in the least bit concerned with this greater bread for the greater life that he is offering. And Jesus knows this, and he will confront it. This brings us to our final point for this evening. After the motivations and the manna, we come to Jesus' mission, verses 35 to 40. Here Jesus will explain more clearly what he means and why he has taken such displeasure with the crowd's request. In verse 35, Jesus makes one of his famous I am statements that we see throughout the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus provides true spiritual nourishment that no one else can. Lots of people could give this crowd bread, 
They could go home and make it themselves, or they could buy it, or they could acquire it through some other means. But what Jesus is offering them is something truly unique to him. But they do not believe. He confronts their unbelief in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows who are his. He knows that this crowd here gathered is not his for the most part. And he explains how he knows this in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus is stating very clearly here the truth of election. The Father, before the foundation of the world, elected to save a particular people for his name. The Father has chosen these people and given them to the Son. And they are definitely elected and called. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, none of those who the Father gives the Son will not come. God does not lose any who are his. Now this doctrine of election, it's often met with this objection. Well, how do you know you're elect? Well, Jesus gives the answer. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The Father elects a particular people, and those who belong to him come to Christ. Sometimes I hear about what has become commonly referred to as hyper-Calvinism, where the gospel is not proclaimed because, well, the elect will come anyway. And where if someone believes in Christ, they are still left with doubt as to whether they are elect. Well, Christ's teaching here helps to put down that error. If you believe, Christ will not cast you out. Belief is the evidence of your election. It is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in you towards your salvation. Now, there can be another error here made in the other direction. It is important to maintain proper ordering. Election is what comes first, and it is determinative. It is done by God in eternity, and only those who are elect from eternity will be saved. One of the errors of Jacob Arminius and his followers was that of conditional election, that God looks down the corridors of time and sees those who will choose him, and because he sees that they'll choose him, he thus elects to save them. That's a pretty powerless God who cannot effectually save the people that he created, that requires man to do something in order for his work to actually work. So Jesus' statement here in verse 37 is the guardrails that keep us from going off either side of the road into hyper-Calvinism on one side or the conditional election of Arminianism on the other side. God elects people, and that they are elect is shown by their faith and repentance. Next, starting in verse 38, we hear something very similar to what Jesus said in the previous chapter. The statements about the unity between he and the Father, and his will and the Father's will. Now these were the very statements for which the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. In their eyes, Jesus was a blasphemer. He was claiming equal authority with God. 
Of course, the problem for them is that Jesus claims this because it's true. The Jews refuse to accept even that possibility. Jesus came to do the will of the Father because He is the Son of God, united in essence and united in purpose with the Father. But then in verse 39, we get some new information. The unity of will and purpose between the Father and the Son serves the particular purposes of redemption. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to purchase redemption for God's particular elect people. And this work is certain and guaranteed. Of those God has chosen, not one will be lost. But here Jesus also introduces the eschatological element, the eternal element. He will raise those who belong to God for whom he purchases redemption. He will raise them up on the last day. God elects to resurrect. God elects his people so that their sins might be forgiven and they might have everlasting life. But this forgiveness and resurrection comes through faith. That is verse 40. The elect receive faith by the working of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of the heart and the mind, so that they might embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel, so that they might be raised up on the last day. Now note also that embedded in these statements is another divine claim by Jesus, not only of his unity of will with the Father, but also his unity with the Father in power, particularly his authority and his power to raise the dead. Who does Jesus say will raise up his people on the last day? He will. Jesus has all power and authority, not just over disease and food, not only this unified power and will with the Father, but he has power over death itself. The very Son of God who suffered the terrors of the cross and the wrath of God against sin and raised himself up on the third day will raise his chosen people up on the last day. That is the hope of the gospel. That is how Jesus is the bread of life for his people so that they might never hunger again. It's not a life that comes through the eating and drinking of the things of this world, this fleeting temporal life that we have here, where we're always hungry, always thirsty, always getting sick, always having the various problems and irritations and sorrows and trials of this life. No, Jesus is the living bread that gives everlasting life. Though we may suffer lack and want and sorrow and struggle in this life, we may hope in Jesus Christ and the eternal life he gives, knowing with confidence and certainty that he will raise us up on the last day. That faith being the evidence that God knows us by name, he has chosen us in Christ to be his very own. Perhaps you are here tonight and you have not yet believed, but perhaps the Holy Spirit is working faith in your heart such that you are being drawn to the Father through Christ. 
The gospel is freely offered to you again this night. Repent of your sins, turn from them, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for in Him alone is everlasting life, the bread that one may partake and live forever. If you are here tonight and belong to Christ, recognize that in His gospel you have the very bread of life. You can live a life of joyful, hopeful expectation, even in the face of all the trials and hardships of this life, knowing that Christ will raise you up on the last day. But also know that this bread is desperately needed by so many others. The rest of the world is going about its own way, trying to find these things that it thinks will satisfy, trying to find food and drink and whatever other earthly pleasures, health, wellness, whatever the world thinks will satisfy, none of them can bring eternal life. Only Jesus Christ, the bread of life, can do that. And so may we all be faithful to take this gospel to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word, for the hope that it gives us, for the confidence that it gives us that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the bread of life of which we may partake and never be hungry and never be thirsty again, because we have eternal life that is hidden with you that none can take away from us. I pray that this would inspire in us hope and confidence as we live our lives in this world that it would inspire us to take this gospel to others who need to hear, that we would strive to support the work that takes it all around the world. I pray most of all that we would believe and have confidence in this gospel, that all here tonight would believe and rest confidently in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.